An Air France Concorde tries to make a standard takeoff out of Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris. How did another plane cause a supersonic jet to catch fire and fall out of the sky? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. This is episode 19. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. And we have a guest, my friend, Kara. Yeah. I am very excited to be here with you guys today. She recently started listening to our podcast and is hooked. Yeah. Most definitely. And Miranda knows too much about this crash that she can't effectively ask questions. Yeah. So that's why Kara's here. Outside source. Those of you who don't already know, I'm like kind of obsessed with this plane. So when we went to Seattle yesterday, I got a keychain. Of the Concorde! That is what we are covering today. This is a big one. This is a really big one. So today we're talking about the very famous Air France Flight 4590. This was a crash that occurred on July 25th of 2000, the year 2000. It was a Concorde. Hey. <laughs> a supersonic jet. <laughs> Which the Concorde was a, it was a supersonic jet, and it was a joint project between the French and the British, and so only two airlines ever owned it, Air France and British Airways. This one belonged to Air France with a registration of Foxtrot-Bravo-Tango-Sierra-Charlie. This airplane was not the intended airplane for this flight. It was the reserve airplane. It was supposed to be a different tail number. Wait, different Concorde airplane? Yeah. Yep. Oh, okay. Um, I thought it was, you meant like an entirely different airplane. No, like, no, no, what? no. Different. It was just the reserve for the, the route. This was a charter flight, by the way, from Charles de Gaulle to JFK. Charles de Gaulle is in Paris. JFK in New York. And charter flights don't operate like normal commercial flights. Charter flights are literally airplanes for hire. Um, they can be scheduled based on demand or if a customer needs the airplane at a certain time to on a certain route, then they'll they'll hire the airplane. But it is not a normally scheduled flight for passengers. It's not one you can normally book on their website. So as somebody who doesn't know a lot about aviation, yep. is that what you mean by reserve flight? Is that so, it's charter? It flight? is actually no. No, it In, means the airplane that was the backup airplane. Yeah. So, so well, for what do you know what happened yes. to the original plane that they were going to use? Yes, I do. So originally, so the the actual scheduled flight earlier in the day is flight 002 between New York and Paris or Paris and New York, rather. They and, give the big identifying numbers to the really famous flights. So 002 is flight two. Yep. From Paris to New York on the Concorde. Those are like the most prestigious flights, the really well-recognized ones, obviously. And those, that flight was earlier in the day. And the original airplane for that one was in maintenance overnight. And they determined it would not be airworthy by the time of the the flight. So they had to use a reserve air, uh, reserve airplane or the backup airplane for Flight 2, which was the airplane that was originally scheduled on 4590. So then 4590's backup, or reserve airplane, which was this tail number, is the airplane that actually carried out the flight. And remind me, they didn't make a lot of Concords because they didn't have a lot of parts, and they were not in high demand because they were only used by two airlines. They were extremely expensive to operate. Very expensive. So what, they made like... 16, 20? 18 of them, I think. Oh, see, in between the two. I thought it was 17. Oh, something like that. It's in that number range. <laughs> yeah. So I'm assuming what they did was half went to Air France, half went to British Airways. Essentially. Yep. We can figure this out. We Somebody. can do some boopity boops. Somebody who's obsessed with the Concorde has a website all about the Concorde. 
I need to go to that website. It's called heritageconcord.com. <laughs> For a plane that no longer flies. <laughs> yeah, the Concorde has been retired. It has, Yeah, it's know. retired. You can't fly it. That's why we got to go see them. Because three of them are in the United States. One of them's at the, in the Seattle Boeing... Museum of Flight. Museum of Flight. So how long have they been retired? And why were they retired? 2001? We'll, we will get to why they were retired later. Okay. However, they were retired in 2003. Oh, 2003. So they've been, it's been over 10 years, almost 20 years. Yeah, going on 20 flown. years. Okay. I think they're farewell shenanigans because they did like farewell tours. I think it was all in 2003. Yep. So fun fact about supersonic jets. There was a big race to figure out who would be able to finish one first. In America, Boeing had a model I don't remember what it was called. The Boeing SST, or supersonic transport. Yeah. Uh, And then Russia had a model. The TU-144, which actually existed and was the only other one to enter commercial flight. And it rarely did supersonic because it flew over land almost always. And that's what I was getting to. And then the Concorde, which was France and, and Britain. They found out very quickly you can't use these over land because the supersonic waves of sound the boom would cause car alarms to go off and windows to break and all that kind of stuff to happen so they were like okay well we can only do this over the ocean where it wouldn't do damage to people's property so did they try it first overland and see that that happens i think they tested it overland they didn't even have to test it overland they actually started flying routes overland they did test it as well but they just they started flying routes overland and they got too many complaints However, on their farewell tour, they were cleared to fly one last flight over land. But to do it, they went over northern Canada, where nobody There's, like, nobody there. (laughs) (laughs) That was the flight that they did to get it from, I think it was, it was either New York or Dulles. I looked it up. It was from Dulles. To the Museum of Flight. Yep. It's the one we saw. Oh, okay. It's British Airways one, BT-dubs. Yep. Anyway. Also, there were 20 made. Oh, there were 20. 20 made, yeah. Okay. Okay. You all were wrong. Yep. Well, I said However, 16 to 20. We're in the range. However, not all of them were built for commercial flight. Oh, okay. Well, the test one probably wasn't. There were six non-commercially made. So Out of the 20? Yes. Yeah, so there was okay. only 14 in service then. Correct. Okay. And then what I was going to say about supersonic jets. So the reason why supersonic was so cool is instead of taking eight hours to get from London to New York, it could take two and a half because it could fly higher and faster than a seven what seven forty seven forty seven. Yep, they would typically fly at over sixty thousand feet, which is wow. absolutely insane. Which yesterday <laughs> on our flight back from Seattle, we were at thirty nine thousand, which is pretty high. Yes, but they were even. They were sick. They were over sixty thousand feet. So they, they were at almost. 30,000 more feet above where we were at cruising altitude yesterday. And then they would fly it over Mach 2. Yeah, wow. so that's two times the, the speed of sound. Twice yeah. the speed of sound. Okay, that's pretty fast. So, th- to give you some background of the Concorde. Also, there's a droop snoot. Yeah, they have <laughs> they have the droop snoot. So, the Concorde's really high up, and we'll show you pictures, uh, but it was really hard for pilots while they were on the ground taxiing to see the ground. Oh. So, the, the snoot that was required for the jet to go supersonic would droop. It'd go down, uh-huh. and then they'd taxi, and then on their takeoff, it'd come back up. So it was very formally called the Droop Snoot. That's, the Droop Snoot. That's <laughs> oh. actually I can pull up a picture the name. 
There is another name for it, but the Droop Snoot is what it is called. So are there still planes that have a Droop Snoot? No. Nope. That the was Concord, the only plane. The Concorde and the TU-144 Well, and you'll the see why. The, oh, it, wow. So it's very pointy, and because it was so long, it was hard to see the ground, so it had to droop. It only held about 100 people. Oh, that's it? Yeah. It wasn't a huge airplane. Um, the windows are deceptively small. Yeah, the, the windows are actually about maybe the size of my hand. Why? Is there a reason for that? Structure. Got yeah, it. the structure of the airplane at supersonics, uh, supersonic speeds. And the airplane was also, I mean, it was made of aluminum mostly. So it was, and other metallic materials. So they, so unlike composite materials, it doesn't do very well at high speeds and frictions. Okay. So we'll get into lots more fun facts about the Concorde and stuff later. For the story. So like I said, this was a charter flight from Paris Charles de Gaulle to New York JFK. The captain was Christian Marty. He was 54. He had been flying with Air France since 1967. He had 13,477 hours total, of which 317 hours were on the Concorde. He was the least experienced of the three on the Concorde. I also forgot that the Concorde had an engineer. Yes. The first officer was Jean Marcos. He was 50. He had been with Air France since 1971. He had 10,035 hours, of which 2,698 were on the Concorde. He was the most experienced of the three on the Concorde. The flight engineer was Gilles Jardineau. He was 58. He had been with Air France since 1968. He had 12,532 hours total, of which 937 hours were on the Concorde. So between the three of them, they had way over 30,000 hours of experience, and each one of them had over 10,000 on their own, which is pretty experienced. They were they were quite the experienced crew. This flight had nine crew, three flight crew, and six cabin crew, and 100 passengers on Can board. we talk about, sorry, because we went on there yesterday, mm-hmm. how small the aisle is? Yeah, it's really small. How would they fit six other people, like, in the galleys and stuff? I just don't. That's, like, weird to me. Yeah, you have to duck getting in and out of that airplane. Because they're so, it's so small on the inside. It is. Well, and it didn't help that they plexiglassed off the seats, so you had even less space. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. That was horrible. What? They, so part of the reason, they did that with all the planes that had seats in them, because they don't want people picking at the seats and sitting in the seats. Got it. So they have this giant, like, tent of plexiglass over all of the seats, and it made the aisle already small aisleway even smaller. (laughs) So were you able to take pictures on the airplane? Yeah, Yeah. and I'll I'll show you some of them, because I have have some from yesterday. They are on our social media, for those of you who haven't already seen them. Already. Yep, they're up there. Oh, I did even see those. (laughs) I took more, though, that I didn't put online. Yeah. So for this flight, the captain was the pilot flying, and the first officer was pilot not flying, or pilot monitoring. The the aircraft had 95 tons of fuel on board for a total weight of 186.9 tons, as stated by the flight engineer before the engines were started. The speeds that were selected were V1 or velocity 1 of 150 knots for takeoff. So 150 knots would be your no return speed, yeah, or in other the, words... it's the no-go. You can't, you can't not take off after you hit V1. Yeah, you commit to take off. And VR, or rotation velocity, where you pull the flight con- the controls back to lift the airplane, was 198 knots, which is a much bigger distance between V1 and VR from than most airplanes. Also, that's just really fast in general. It is. 198 knots is extremely fast for most airplanes. Here. It has to go fast. 
Okay, so it has to go really fast because, as you might have seen in the pictures I just showed you, they have a different wing shape than other planes. It's called a delta wing. It is, it is called a delta wing. Other planes have what is called an airfoil, which is a very specific shape so that the there's a difference in velocity above and under the wing to generate lift. And it's much harder for the Concorde to do that because all of its wings are filled with fuel tanks, which I have pictures of later. And so in order to get lift, it has to go way faster in order to get off off the ground. Okay. Yep. So the flight crew contacted air traffic control at 1.58 p.m. and 27 seconds to request that they wanted the full length of runway 26 right for takeoff, as they were very heavily loaded for their scheduled departure at 2.30 p.m. At 2.07 p.m. and 22 seconds, air traffic control gave the flight clearance to start their engines and confirmed that 26 right was the runway for takeoff. At 2.34 p.m. and 38 seconds, the ground controller gave taxi instructions to runway 26 right to the flight crew and told him to hold short at taxiway Romeo, which is the furthest taxiway at the very end of 26 right. At 2.40 p.m. and 2 seconds, the South Tower controller, because there are two towers at Charles de Gaulle. Freaking Charles de Gaulle. It is a big airport. At 2.40 p.m. and 2 seconds, the South Tower controller cleared flight 4590 to line up and wait on the runway. So in other words, they were allowed to pull onto the runway, line up with the center line, and then they had to hold still. At 2.42 and 17 seconds, air traffic control cleared the flight for takeoff. The clearance was acknowledged by the flight crew and immediately after, and the flight engineer reported to the captain and the first officer that they had used 800 kilograms of fuel up to that point, or about 1,763 pounds of fuel. Which is a lot. That's a lot. So in the episode, it had said that for them to get just to taxi to the runway is the same amount of fuel a car would use in six months. About. Wow. An average car would use in about six an months. An average yeah. car would use in six months. That's how much just getting from the gate to the runway. It was not an efficient plane it by any means. It was an unbelievably inefficient machine, actually. At 2.42 and 31 seconds, the airplane began its takeoff roll. At 2.42 and 54.6 seconds, the first officer calls out 100 knots. And nine seconds later, he calls out V1, or the point of no return. This was at 150 knots. A few seconds later, the airplane experienced a very loud and violent thud heard by the flight crew and all the passengers. The plane had a very large fire trailing the left engine wing area around the wheel well to the left main landing gear, which was reported by air traffic control to the flight crew as the captain was rotating the airplane per the procedures for V1. Wait, wait, wait. So are they even in the area or are they, they were still not. on the ground? They were still, still on, on the, the ground. ground. Oh, well, that's... Not good. But they were already no. past V1. They so can't stop. Now they so have they to, have to take off? Now yeah. they have to commit to fly. But thank you for acknowledging that they are still on the ground. That is pertinent later. The first officer had urged the captain to abort the takeoff before the rotation, but the captain knew that they had too little runway and they were already past V1, which meant that they had to fly. So he rotated the airplane and began to lift the airplane to lift the airplane off the ground anyways. The first officer acknowledged ATC's transmission about the fire as the airplane became airborne, and it, the air traffic controller quickly signaled an alert to the airport emergency crews as he watched the airplane trailing smoke leaving the airport. Simultaneously, the flight engineer announced that the number two engine failed and reduced the throttle to idle. A loss of power to the number one engine was also recorded at the time, but it's unknown if the flight crew even noticed this failure. Just so you know, the number one and two engines are on the left wing on this airplane, and the number three and four are on the right wing. So three and four were unaffected, but one and two were on the left wing. We're both giving bad indications. At 2.43 and 13 seconds, a fire alarm sounded in the cockpit, alerting to a fire in one of the engines. The, f the flight engineer exclaimed, shut down engine two. The captain then asked for the engine fire procedures, and a few seconds later, 
The fire extinguisher lever was pulled for the number two engine. The first officer alerted the captain to the airspeed, which was dangerously low at 200 knots for the airplane. That's just above their rotation speed, so just above flying, basically. At 2.43 p.m. and 30 seconds, the captain requested the retraction of the landing gear, and the air traffic controller confirmed a large fire from the rear of the plane still. At 2.43 and 42 seconds, the fire alarm sounded again for 12 seconds, then again at 2.43 and 58 seconds for the remainder of the flight. At 2.43 and 56 seconds, the first officer commented that the landing gear had not retracted and drew attention to the low airspeed again. At 2.43 and 59 seconds, the Ground Proximity Warning System, or GPWS, sounded several times, and the first officer informed air traffic control that they were trying to make it to Le Bourget, which is an airport extremely close to Charles de Gaulle along their path. And they nearly made it, but they didn't. It's also the airport where the Paris Air Show is held, by the way. It's the biggest air show in the world. A further loss of power to the number one engine occurred, and the airplane crashed into a hotel a few seconds later at the intersection of N-17 and D-902 roads. A very large fireball was seen and captured on camera as were the moment of the airplanes burst into fl- bursting into flames before lifting off, the rotation of the airplane while on fire, and the airplane trailing smoke at a low altitude by several witnesses. There were no survivors. All 109 on board perished, as well as four persons in the hotel, and another six hotel occupants were injured. Is that Le Bourget right there? Le Bourget is the one on the left, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so close. Wow. It is unbelievably they close. They really, like, they were very, very close. They they were very smart in picking that direction. You could see they started their turn, but they didn't make it. So, I have a lot of questions. <laughs> Go I'm for sure. it. sure. Okay. So, they caught on fire and lost engine power in right. the left wing? Completely, basically. Before they even left the grounds? So they caught on fire, yes. They caught on fire just in front of the left engines, essentially, before they left the ground, before they even rotated, but after V1. Okay. They heard the loud thud, and by that point, basically, they were on fire. So at that point, they had to leave because they're past V1. Yep. So then, I guess, again, I don't know a lot about how airplanes work, or like how long then they had to be in the air, like before they can land again, because obviously, they so knew that wasn't going to go They well. could have landed, like literally, they would have been able to land at Le Bourget, which is Like, you can see it in the corner over here, and I'll put this on the website too, but they could have landed, um, or they could have tried to do a thing where they turned around and went back to Charles de Gaulle. The thing was, is they couldn't, they couldn't abort takeoff, because they'd passed V1, and if you try to abort takeoff at that point, it just, you'll crash past the runway, because you don't, there's no way to slow the plane down in time. Mm-hmm. Also, they would have made it to Le Bourget, but they didn't have power in two of the engines, so they didn't have lift. So yep. they were falling. Yep. Oh. The n- yeah, because one and two were both on the same wing and they were failing, it it just, it wouldn't have worked. Yeah, and it was only seconds before they hit the hotel that the number one engine showed for the second time that it was losing power. And so on its own, the number one engine was losing power just seconds before they hit the hotel, which meant that they were losing lift rapidly. Okay. Especially with a Delta wing, it takes an enormous amount of speed to keep that thing flying. And if you lose even a couple of knots, the airplane becomes a brick. So in a different airplane, um, if you lost all that engine power on one side, you could still a- fly. Okay, could that's still what fly. I thought. Most airplanes, you can fly with one engine. So, and here's the thing with the Concorde is that they could still fly on two engines. In theory, two of them could be out. But they, could fly. but they were at too low of a speed, too low of an altitude, and the landing gear was down the whole time. They attempted Which to added drag. It added drag. They attempted to retract the landing gear, and it did not. So I'm sure you're gonna cover this, but why did the landing gear not retract? I want to know that too. I don't think I know the answer to that right. either. And actually, it doesn't come up in the investigation oh. very much. But 
essentially what happened here is those two engines were failing, so they lost hydraulic pressure. Oh, ha 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 ha. And I was as, like, it has something to do with hydraulics. <laughs> I knew it. As they I were, just didn't know how. Yeah, as they were losing hydraulic pressure, the, the landing gear would not retract. And that creates more drag. Yes. Yeah, because so that's part an of extra a lot part of the plane okay. that's pulling back. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's I a think lot that's more drag. All of my questions right now. Yep. Cool. Sweet. Also, thank you for saying the same thing I do. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm sure we're going to cover this later, but <laughs> I learned from the best. <laughs> okay. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Okay, and we're back. So I'm going to cover wreckage. It's not a huge, huge portion to this, but it's still, there's enough. A lot of debris and marks were found on the runway, runway 26 right, including parts of the water deflectors, which the water deflectors are on the landing gear. They are just in front of the tires, actually. They're mounted low on the landing gear in front of the tires, away from the, the center piece of the landing gear, so on the outsides of the tires. And those water deflectors were literally there because water was causing problems on the Concorde, splashing up from the tires. And so there's these little deflectors that literally, they like, they shape around the outside of the tire, have a little bit of clearance, and they're really low to the ground. And pieces of those tire deflectors were found shattered all over the runway. Debris was found along the flight path of the airplane as well, so not just at the airport, it was found all the way along its flight path over cornfields and, and or whatever they have, cornfields... I don't know, wheat fields, I don't know. Parts of the landing gear were found about 1,642 meters to 1,845 meters from the beginning of runway 26, right? It's about three times that in feet. Yep. So, pretty good length away. None of these parts were metallic. Some pieces of tire were also found on the runway. A piece of a fuel tank and a brake servo valve cover were also found on the runway. Pieces of the concrete were scorched, showing an area of explosion, and the flames left scorch marks along the flight path of the airplane as it left the runway and veered left of the runway. Several runway edge lights were destroyed. The hotel was completely destroyed, as was the airplane. It left a large scorched area of very, very small debris with little clear wreckage noticeable. So did anyone in the hotel die then? Four. Four people. Okay. Four people Which died. Which is surprising considering... It destroyed the entire... I mean, it, 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 it destroyed the entire hotel. It literally disintegrated. It literally hit the middle of the hotel. So then were those like the only four people in the hotel or where nope, was everyone else? there were else? six others that were injured. I'm not okay. sure... It doesn't say, like, where specifically they were, but there was nothing around the hotel. It was in a field. Okay. So I have to assume they were at the hotel. That's all I have on wreckage. Okay. So the reason that it had such a large fire is because there was so much fuel on board. As we had discussed, the Concorde needs a lot of fuel. And right now I am displaying a picture that is on our website at hardlandingpodcast.com. It is a diagram of all of the fuel tanks on board. That's why they also needed the wings to be that way, because they need that much fuel to go supersonic. So, how many fuel tanks are there usually on a plane? Three. Yeah, there are usually three or four. Yeah, like two, one in each wing, and then one in the center in the fuselage. So, there are 11 in this one? 13. 13, 13 fuel tanks. There's yeah. 12 in the wings and one in the tail. Wow. Okay. Yeah. There's a lot of fuel. Yes. <laughs> yes. The airplane, like I said, 
I was saying yesterday, the airplane was more fuel than airplane. Yep, and the piece that Nick had mentioned was on the runway was from fuel tank number five, which in this diagram is on the left wing kind of center. It's right in front of the engine. Yep. Easy. Yes. Which would have been mounted right above the landing gear, FYI. Lucky for investigators, they were able to collect a ton of witness statements, videos, and photos while they were waiting for the fire to be put out. We have posted these on our blog, and we will now show Kara a video, so elevator music. So it's really grainy footage, which is understandable given that it happened in 2000. From the photos and video and witness reports, investigators solidly established that the plane began its takeoff just fine until a loud bang or explosion, at which point a fire started on the left side of the plane near the left engines while it was still on the ground before it rotated. Nearby mechanics said it sounded like an engine surge. Several people who were watching the takeoff noticed that the plane swerved slightly to the left after the explosion and several pieces fell away as the plane took off. Knowing that the fire began on the runway, that's where they started. They found a bunch of debris, as Nick had mentioned, including tire pieces, a piece of the number 5 fuel tank, and a metal strip. The runway itself was covered in soot, and you can clearly see the tread marks of a tire that looked different from the rest. So you can see those dark, almost black drag marks. Mm -hmm. Using some basic measurements, they determined that these were the tracks of the number 2 tire, the front right tire on the main landing gear. So... We also have a diagram of all the wheels so you can kind of tell what we're talking about. On the left landing gear on the front axle are wheels one and two, and in the back axle were five and six. On the right landing gear, front axle were three and four, and back axle were seven and eight. Seven, eight. And that, which number was that? Number two. Number two. Okay. Number two is the one that they determined failed. From the table that we also have, you can tell that that particular tire had 37 cycles on it. A A flight cycle is a take off and landing so it took off once landed once it's a cycle which doesn't sound like a lot when you think about airplanes flying but the concord had to have tires changed a lot yeah because they were really they had to be pumped up <laughs> high because of the tires. amount of fuel how heavy the aircraft was they had to be pumped up very 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 full of nitrogen, nitrogen. Yep, gas. nitrogen yep. so they had to be changed quite often yeah they were so the, really specialty tires for the yep. concord they were goodyear tires and the oldest one that was on there was only 45 cycles old the newest one was just replaced tire number five was just replaced you can see it has zero cycles on it okay so they don't all have to be changed at the same time then they do not. it is not like your car Nope. Okay. No. They have. They don't have to be aligned or anything like right. that. Right. So tires on aircraft have grooves, and those grooves are actually wear marks. Um, the grooves don't do much for traction. They don't matter much, but they're grooved in certain certain increments across the tire in the direction of travel. And those grooves, when basically when the the taller part of the tire wears down to the bottom of that groove, it's time to replace the tire. So I remember, I can't remember which episode this was. There was another plane um, that had different tire pressure in one of the tires, and that caused yes. all the issues. That's not anything like what happened here. No. no. Okay. No. Nope. It has to do with the tire, but it has nothing to do with the actual tire pressure, or even really the tire itself. Nope. The More about what factor. was on the runway than about the tire. Okay. Got it. On that note, great segue. Let's go back to this thing. As I had mentioned earlier, a strip of metal was also found on the runway. It was 43 centimeters long, about 17 inches for those of us who don't use the metric system, like dummies, and was made of <laughs> titanium. It Which also meant it probably came from an airplane. 
It also had rivet holes along it at irregular intervals. So you can see some of it's kind of regular, but there's like weird gaps. Go with it. On one side was a red adhesive used frequently in aviation for high temperature parts, and the other side was painted with a green epoxy primer. What they also noted is the twisted piece of metal was twisted in the same shape as the cut in the tire piece that we saw earlier. Oh. So they ran over this on the runway then? That was the assumption, yes. Okay. So, to establish if that for sure was the case, um, the NTSB, who was involved at this point, because it was a Goodyear tire, that is American. Yay, involve America. Also, fun fact of trivia that I learned from Chris. Goodyear is the dude who invented rubber as we know it today. Yeah, vulcanized rubber. Before, like, rubber just comes from trees and is kind of gooey and useless. But the second you put sulfur in it, you vulcanize it, and it's useful. Interesting. So that's why Goodyear tires are Goodyear tires. Yep. So the NTSB and the BEA jointly performed a test using a replica of the titanium strip and placed it in front of a trailer stacked to simulate the same weight that a Concorde tires would experience, about 25 tons, and it had Concorde tires on it. Wow. Yeah, they went a little extra. <laughs> Upon driving over the strip, their questions were answered. That strip absolutely burst the Concorde's tire, though it did cut a little bit deeper than the one from the accident. Additional testing from other laboratories proved that the tires rotating as quickly as they were on takeoff, it was a perfect match. So basically, they ran over this piece of debris. It caused the tire to burst completely, and really, it exploded. Okay, but why would that lead to the airplane in flames? I'm That's get, just a I'm tire. I'm getting there. No, I'm asking this for a dramatic effect. Okay. So this is the test tire I'm looking at? Yes. yes. Okay. Slice. That's a very large slice. Yes. But it's also the exact same shape. Okay. But where did this strip come from? Before we get into any of Nick's questions. So they knew it was titanium. It was evident it was from another aircraft, coupled with the fact that it had aviation adhesive on it. It also didn't match anything on the Concorde. They compared it to every picture of every part of the Concorde, and it was not from the Concorde. So investigators got a list of all of the planes that took off on that runway since it was last inspected at 1 p.m., and they compared it to those planes. From that data, they concluded that it either came from a Boeing 747 or a McDonnell Douglas DC-10. Guess what? <laughs> it was the DC-10? Oh, yeah. yeah. I remember, sorry, real quick. So me and Christy, we watched the Air Disasters episode on this, I don't know, maybe a year, year and a half ago. At a restaurant. At a restaurant. And we both looked at each other and said, there is no way that came from a 47. That definitely came off a DC-10. Yeah. So is this the one you were talking about in one episode? That yes. You said? Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember that story. Yes. Yeah, this, yeah, yeah. Is, this is that crash. So how often do they inspect their runways then? Often. Very often. This, I think the DC-10 took off right before the Concorde did. This is literally my next sentence. The 747 took off before the Concorde, and the DC-10 took off before the 747, five minutes before the Concorde. So both were very close in time to the Concorde. However, yeah, they had done an inspection of the runway at, what, 1 p.m., you said? Yeah, and they usually do them about every one to two hours, typically, at big airports that are really heavy-use runways. Mm Mm-hmm. Research on several types of aircraft showed that the part would, could be a wear strip from a CF650 engine fan reverser cowl, which is what was used on the DC-10. Though Miranda and I could have told you it was a DC-10. <laughs> Definitely a DC-10. <laughs> Continental Airlines was operating the DC-10 that had taken off prior and worked with the BEA to have that particular plane inspected. Upon opening the number three engine cowling, they found a wear strip missing. Wear strips are a buffer for moving parts of the engine, but are not essential to the operation of the engine. 
So they wouldn't have noticed it was missing just based on the plane running. It exactly matched the strip on the found on the runway at Charles de Gaulle. There was a red mastic adhesive used to attach it, and it was the same length as the strip found. And the other strips had a green epoxy primer on the outside, matching the other side of the strip. Last but not least, the rivet holes matched. So what caused it to fall off? Like, was that... I mean, was it just wear, or was it a mistake in how they installed it? It was only done 16 days prior to it falling off, and it was not done well. Of course it wasn't. As I feel like is just the the exact just sentence of the DC-10 in general. (laughs) (laughs) Some things about the DC-10 were pretty reliable. Honestly, they still fly, and they're pretty reliable airplanes now, but when they were originally built, they had some serious issues. And actually... On this airplane in particular, where the wear strip was, there are holes drilled so many different times in so many different places because they'd replaced the wear strip enough times and the holes wouldn't line up, so the tech would just drill a new hole. Well, that seems like a bad idea. So I'm looking at this picture. There are literally holes across the entire strip. It looks like Swiss cheese. Yeah. <laughs> Except more red. Yeah. And it's got more holes than Swiss cheese. Yep. So. It's just kind of, like I said, like how I would think DC-10s work. Well, and Nick later will get more into the consequences that Continental Airlines faced. So then this was just a bad design of the airplane, then not anyone's... No, it was actually. more actually the maintenance personnel that replaced the wear strip okay. than it was the actual airplane. Yeah. Oh, okay. And this would have had to do with an engine manufacturer anyways, which is separate from an aircraft manufacturer. The engine manufacturers have their own responsibilities in manufacturing engines separate from aircraft manufacturers. Okay. Also, this was not noticeable from the outside. You could only see that it was missing if you opened up the engine cowling. And... They only inspected the engine, I think it was October. Oh boy. After the crash, the crash happened at the end of July, and they had only opened the engine cowling once in that time, and it was on August 25th, and they did not notice it. So then, why was this piece even there, if clearly it didn't really need to be there? It helps make it more efficient, but it's not essential. Like, you're not, the engine's not going to stop working because it's gone, but it's nice to have. And essentially, over time, it's supposed to prevent it prevent the movements in the engines from wearing on the other parts, the other components of the engine. So that's great and all. We know that the tire burst, how it burst, and where that strip came from. But why was it leaking fuel? Well, that piece that I showed earlier from the number five uh, fuel tank, it showed the fractures on it, which I could get more into, but I'm opting not to because I think Miranda would punch me. Um, Only slightly. (laughs) It showed that the fuel leak didn't happen from something entering the tank. That piece exploded outward from the fuel tank. That meant something inside made it fail. What's in a fuel tank? Fuel. Uh, Fuel. Yeah, good job. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Calculations were performed using finite element analysis, which I will explain someday the mechanics of that. And they use the assumptions that a 4.5 kilogram or 10 pound piece of tire, um, they use that because that was basically what was found. And they used it traveling at 140 meters per second or about 313 miles per hour toward the tank. Yes, that's a really high speed, but that was calculated based on the rotational velocity coupled with the energy from the tire bursting. So it's not, what's the word I'm looking for? Untold. It's not it's, untold. It's not unreasonable. Yeah, yeah, it's it's it. They made the calculation, so it made sense that it would. go It wasn't that fast. just a wild guess number. It was calculated based on 
data. Data. Based so on science. what I'm understanding is a huge piece of the burst tire flew into the fuel tank? It flew toward the flew fuel towards tank. the fuel yeah. tank. They also used a an angle of 30 degrees relative to the skin. They also had the that the tire hit the tank at a particular point because they found that piece at the site. They found that piece of the fuel tank that had a marking from the tire, but it did not puncture the fuel tank. So why did it leak? What the simulation proved is that the pressure wave generated by the tire hitting the fuel tank bounced around the basically full fuel tank until it hit a weak spot. So basically, the fuel inside bounced around until it found a weak spot. Weak spots in material generally occur at edges and corners, and the failure rupture occurred at the base of a structural rib. A corner, if you will. Basically, they proved that the fuel is what caused the rupture. Okay, so big huge chunk of rubber flies, hits the outside of the fuel tank, makes all the fuel inside slosh around until it found a spot that was weak. Yes, and, and then burst the fuel tank. For okay. reference, that pressure wave in the fuel traveled at about the speed of sound. Very fast. Wow. Okay. So that's why it hit so hard. Yeah, it wasn't so, just sloshing. It was right. literally okay. hitting in all directions it, until it hit something that was the weak enough. The it would have been yeah. almost simultaneous, where the tire hit the outside of the, the fuel tank, but then all of a sudden it just blew right back because of the, the pressure wave in the, the fuel tank. It was nearly simultaneous, but it was in the opposite direction. Yeah, the rupture okay. happened somewhere else. It did not happen where the tire hit it. Okay. And it also only could have happened when the tank was basically full. If there had been a surface on top of the fuel, that would have dissipated some of the pressure wave. Oh. So the fuel, the full fuel tank was the problem. Yep. But they had to have it because that's how much fuel they used to go supersonic. Yeah. Wow. Per- perfect storm. It was. Okay. So we have the tire burst and the fuel leak. What about the fire? This was not discussed in the Air Disasters slash Mayday episode, for those of you who have watched that. Investigators looked into three possible sources of ignition of the fuel. An engine surge, an electric arc, and contact with hot sections of the engine. All of these have caused fires in the past. The mechanics earlier had talked about hearing an engine surge, which was accurate. It did happen. However, this theory was nixed because witnesses insisted that they saw flames before they heard the engine surges. So, I mean, pretty... Easy. Not that. Second, they looked into arcing. As we discussed in episode 9, arcing is what happens when a live wire's insulation is compromised and the wire is exposed to air. Simulations of the Concorde prove that if the insulators of the wires to the brake ventilators were compromised by crushing, tearing, or cutting, it would create a 27-joule spark that wouldn't have been detected by the circuit breakers because it happens too quickly. Additional tests prove that you'll need a 3-joule spark to ignite vaporized jet fuel. This could have been caused by the number 2 tire compromising the insulation of the wire. Lastly, the investigators looked into contact with hot surfaces of the engine. They did note that there were no traces of fire during the examination of the engines. The biggest problem... The biggest problem with this theory is the fire was in the wheel well area, which is forward of the engines. So the flames would have had to travel forward for this to happen, but that's not to say it didn't happen. Basically, they decided that both hypotheses were probable to explain the flame's appearance, particularly in the photo and video, but the arc was more, the electrical arc was a more likely situation, and they were actually able to re- reproduce that situation in a test rig. So that's probably the one that it was then? Yeah, most likely. Okay. That's the one they, they decided to put in their probable cause. 
And that's all I got. Okay. Are we on to findings? Yeah. Okay, just making sure before. So, this is my part this week. I'm doing findings, the probable cause, and the recommendations. Can I just say how long-winded the French are? Because instead of just having findings, probable cause, recommendations, they have findings, three points on the probable cause, and three different kinds of recommendations. Mm-hmm. So hang in there. <laughs> Nick's going to do some translating when necessary because, you know, that's life. <laughs> I'm translating a translation too translating because a translation. this whole thing was already translated oh, into English. Also, there was a huge disclaimer on the front like, hey, we translated this to English from French, but if it's wrong, that's not our fault. Yeah, yeah. they said the French one is the one, is the actual reference document. But none of us speak French. Yeah. Well, anyway. I, I speak some, but not much. Very, very, very small amounts. Okay, so the findings. The first actually, like, Relevant. Relevant one. During takeoff after V1, the tire on wheel number two was cut by a metallic strip present on the runway. The metallic strip came from the thrust reverser cowl door of engine three on a DC-10 that had taken off five minutes before the Concorde. This metallic strip had been replaced in the in Tel Aviv in June 2000 during the aircraft sea check then again in Houston on Ju- on the 9th of July. The strip <laughs> installed in Houston had neither been manufactured or nor-, nor installed in accordance to the procedures as defined by the manufacturer. A piece of tire from wheel number two weighing 4.5 kilograms was found on the runway near the metallic strip. And other pieces of this tire and few light pieces from the aircraft were also found. Rubber marks from the damaged tire on wheel number two then appeared. A large part of the underside of tank five was found on the runway. It bore no signs of impact and had been ripped away from the inside towards the outside. Another part of the underside of tank five was found at the accident site. It had a puncture 10 millimeters wide and 40 millimeters long. So very, very tiny. So they suspect that came from the tire hitting it, but it wasn't enough to cause the leak. Right, and it's the, so tiny. And the chunk of the fuel tank that was found at on the runway was, you know, it, that's why they looked into how could this tire have caused a puncture over here. A puncture, yeah, somewhere somewhere else in the fuel tank to explode and explode outward. And that yep. was because of the pressure, and so it burst that little chunk of the tank out. Research showed that a projectile penetrating tank 5 could have generated a hydrodynamic pressure surge, but that is could not have caused the ripping of the piece of the tank found in the runway. <laughs> that was just poor translation. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, that doesn't make sense. Basically, they found the tire hitting it didn't cause the tank to burst. It was the pressure surge that caused the tank to burst. A large kerosene mark was found kerosene. on the runway. Kerosene. Thank you. I was like, how the fuck? Okay, so instead of saying jet fuel, they said kerosene every time. Yes, it's the same thing, but it's jet fuel. A large kerosene mark was found on the runway immediately after the piece of the tank. The fuel that was leaking was ignited. A flame and large qualities of smoke appeared behind and to the left of the aircraft. Around 10 meters after the unburned 
kerosene mark, some soot marks on the runway, and then some traces of burnt grass on the left edge of the runway were noted over a distance of 1,300 meters. Yeah. Like, there are, there are pictures in the report, Hot. which we can put on the website, of the burned grass. Yeah, they stretched almost 4,000 feet. So how much of the fuel was, like, actually leaked out to cause this big of a fire? They never said, but it was a lot. They... I can't remember. They Actually, gave, I think you... They yeah. gave a flow rate, and it was a lot. It was like but they, 12... What was it? I don't remember. Okay, she's going to do some research. I'm going to continue. After the aircraft's passage over the metallic strip, the rupture of Tank 5, and the ignition of the leak, engines 1 and 2 suffered simultaneous surges, leading to slight loss of thrust in engine 1 and severe loss in engine 2. Go ahead. So that's when they lost the engine power, then, in one and... When the engine surged, yes. Both engines surged, and the second engine completely was unusable, and the first engine was losing thrust. Right. Okay. The surge on engine one was most likely caused by ingestion of hot gases or solid debris, probably pieces of tire... That on engine two resulting from ingestion of hot gases due to the fire. The crew began aircraft rotation at the same time at a speed of 183. What's KT? Knots. Knots, thank you. 15 knots before VR. So they took off before they were supposed to? Yeah, they left it as soon as they could, basically. Was that because of everything that was going on? Probably. Essentially. Okay. Yeah. Okay, backtracking a little bit. The amount of fuel that was lost was 5.2 tons. Quite a bit. So was that like all of the fuel that was in tank 5 then? No, it had 7.2 tons and read 2 tons afterwards. Okay. So 5.2 leaked out. So most of of the the fuel. fuel. Wow, gotcha. And... The estimated fuel flow rate apart from the leak due to the small puncture and the consumption by engines one and two, was therefore about 60 kilograms per second. So over 120 pounds of fuel per second leaked. Wow. That's a very fast leak. Yeah. It was. And, I mean, mind you, the whole crash took less than, I think it was less than three minutes from the moment of impact on the the fuel tank to the moment that the airplane hit the hotel. Yeah. Scary. The marks on the runway show the aircraft... Devating to the left. Deviating. Deviating. They didn't spell that right. Deviating to the left in relation to the runway center line. Yep. The crew were advised by the ATC that there were large flames behind them. Engine 1 regained almost normal thrust before suffering at the moment of takeoff. A second surge leading to severe loss of thrust. Engine 2, in a slight recovery phase also surged for the second time at that moment. So they both surged twice. Yep. The second surge on engine one was caused by ingestion of hot gases and or jet, I'm just going to say jet fuel. That on engine two by ingestion of hot gases through the auxiliary air intake, which was beginning to reopen. Engine two's fire alarm was activated. The flight engineer announced shutdown engine two. The captain called for the engine fire procedure. Engine 2's thrust lever was in position at idle. The fire handle was 
subsequently pulled by the fire flight engineer. So each um, nowadays and for a long time, engines have fire suppressants in them. So if a, if a engine ends up having a fire, you pull the fire extinguisher and it should extinguish said fire. It does not always happen, the, but well, that's the point of them. The unfortunate thing in this case is that the fire was coming from outside of the engine. It was not the if engine. The fire, if the fire was contained within the engine, the fire extinguisher may have been able to put it out, but because it was flowing through the engine from the front, it wasn't able to extinguish the fire at the source. So it just kept flaming. Yeah. So then if the engines had been in like a different place in front of the fuel tank none of like the surges or anything would have happened. They could have happened still, still. Because they were intaking, you know how engines work, right? They pull in air right. and push out air. So it might have still, it still might have happened because they might have been pulling in air from the hot air coming from the fire. Okay. That was the problem. The gases from the fire and debris potentially going into the engine causing it to surge. Because mm-hmm. of incomplete opening of the left main landing gear door or the absence of detection of opening those doors, the crew were unable to retract the landing gear because of the lack of thrust and the impossibility of retracting the landing gear. The aircraft was in a flight configuration, which made it impossible to climb or gain speed. Too much drag. Following the third surge due to ingestion of pieces of the aircraft structure of hot gases and or of jet fuel, Engine 1 suffered a final loss of thrust. That was right before they hit the hotel. The aircraft then adopted a very pronounced angle of attack and roll attitude. The loss of thrust in engine 3 and 4 was caused by a combination of deliberate selection of idle and by a surge due to excessive airflow distortion. This allowed aircraft bank to be reduced. I didn't know 3 and 4 surged. Three and four didn't, well, more of what was happening here is they they were adjusting the power too quickly, which can cause an, an engine oh. to surge, and they were trying to do so because the airplane began to roll very heavily to one side, so they were planning to reduce power to the two engines to try to get it to roll back straight, um, and it didn't work. So was there anything the crew could have done differently to prevent this? There was no, not. No, no. Okay. It was a perfect storm. There was no way. And as a matter of fact, if they did find that the pilot actually may have done even the right thing. I mean, he by taking off, he gave them a better chance of perhaps surviving than they would have Because it hadn't. would have exploded on the ground, I would think. They would have veered off the runway, they wouldn't have had time to stop, and they would have ended up in a ditch, basically, in, in a big fireball. Yeah, yikes. The aircraft crashed practically flat, destroying a building that was immediately consumed by a violent fire. Many pieces of the aircraft found along the track indicate that severe damage to the aircraft structure was caused in flight by the fire. Even with the engines operating normally, the significant damage caused to the aircraft structure would have led to a loss of the aircraft. What they don't mention, and they mention briefly in the episode, is that the fire was so hot, it could have been melting the wings. Yeah, and more than likely, that was what was causing the airplane to lose lift as well, was literally the wing was melting itself apart. But that's so hard to tell after it was on the ground in a fire. Yep. Disintegrated <laughs> itself. Yeah. So, either way, if because they ran over this strip and it popped the tire the way it did, 
there would have been no way to recover it after that. Also, if that piece of tire had hit somewhere else on the fuel tank, it might not have ruptured. So it was just that it hit right there. That yep. Yeah. That happened. Oh. Yep. And how fast they were going and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So probable causes. <laughs> There's three. The accident was due to the following causes. High-speed passage of a tire over a part lost by an aircraft that had taken off five minutes earlier and the destruction of that tire. The ripping out of a large piece of tank in a complex process of transmission of the energy produced by the impact of a piece of tire at another point in the tank. This transmission associating deformation of the tank skin and the movement of the fuel with perhaps the contributory effect of other more minor shocks and or a hydrodynamic pressure surge. Everything I explained earlier. A lot of big words to say. Tire ran over a piece of metal. It exploded. piece of tire caused the fuel tank to have a very high pressure explosion at a different point than where it was hit. Ignition of the leaking fuel by an electric arc in the landing gear bay or through contact with the hot parts of the engine with forward propagation? Propagation. Propagation, thank you. Of the flame causing a very large fire under the aircraft's wing and severe loss of thrust on engine two, then engine one. In addition, (laughs) the impossibility of retracting the landing gear probably contributed to the retention and stabilization of the flame throughout the flight. Yep. They, they suspect, basically, that if the landing gear had been able to retract, it may have been able to put out the fire, because it may have reduced the amount of oxygen feeding the flame. For one. And that, if it was arcing, that might have stopped it from arcing. Yep. And would have cut off a source of ignition. But the gear would not retract. Sorry, I'm a little bit confused about how would that reduce the amount of oxygen... So the gear, when the gear is retracted, it completely closes against the fuselage. The fuel, the fuel was igniting and flowing through the, the wheel well. And basically when the gear is retracted, that wheel well gets completely shut off from the outside. It's not a pressurized compartment, oh. but it's completely shut off from the outside. And it actually has a negative pressure sometimes because of the pressure outside of the fuselage. But they have no way of knowing if that would happen or if what happened in Nigeria air would have happened where everything was on fire. But there's a a very strange phenomenon that happens and they've actually proven it in a very morbid way. That negative pressure thing that happens in those wheel wells tied with really low temperatures once you get up to altitude. Unfortunately, people do try to evacuate or (laughs) leave their countries by hitching rides on the wheel wells of airplanes before they take off. And as soon as the gear retracts, they may be alive at that point, but they either get crushed or they die in flight due to too low, too little oxygen, both because of altitude, but also a negative pressure and the temperature. That sounds like a really awful death. Yeah, and actually the worst part about that, and it's really morbid to talk about, is that then the gear comes back down and those bodies fall. It happened last year in London. A body fell into somebody's backyard feet from where they were sunbathing. Ew. And somebody got a picture of it. Well, I mean, if something... The body falling. Oh, I mean, if something like that happens, of course you're going to take a picture, No, of it falling from the sky. Oh, even better. Anyway. It was bad. Those things happen. It's very morbid, and it's very unfortunate that anybody does that. It, it It never works out well. 
Nobody should ever try that. It does not go well. Nobody ever survives that. So, the next part is recommendations. There's three sections. There's the planim... Oh my gosh, I can't talk today. <laughs> planim... Preliminary. Preliminary. Preliminary recommendations. There's only one. And then what came from that. And then Concord recommendations specifically. And then general recommendations. So hang on to your hats, everyone. So basically, it was after this crash happened, they explained this is what happened with the tire bursting, etc., etc. The BEA and the AAIB recommended that. To be clear, the BEA is the uh, French Accident Investigation Bureau, and the AAIB is the British. Which makes sense, because they are the only two who have Concords. Yep. And we're not going to say what BEA stands for, because we don't want to make a fool of ourselves trying to say something in French. Yeah, our French listeners, if you if you know, please, please I think we help. have one. Please help. Help. <laughs> we need assistance. <laughs> All right, so the certificates of airworthiness for Concord be suspended until appropriate measures have been taken to guarantee a satisfactory level of safety with regard to the risks associated with the destruction of tires. So that was a preliminary one, and they actually did heed that. Um, They did. It says it in here. Both Air France and British Airways grounded all their Concords for quite a while, actually, while this investigation was going on, before, before they'd let them fly again. And they really wanted to make sure that this airplane was safe. Well, and the the measures that they said would help them be back in service were the installation of flexible linings in tanks 1, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8, reinforcement of electrical harnesses to the main landing gear bays to make sure they didn't arc, modification of flight manual procedures so as to inhibit power supply to the brake ventilators, during critical phases of flight and revision of the MMEL to ensure that technical operational limitations cannot be applied for the tire under pressure detection system. There's a lot of things. That's a really complicated one. Yes. That last one has to do with the way the uh, tire pressure system actually works in the Concorde because they had an automated warning system that would tell them if the tire pressures were too low, but it would also only tell them that at certain points. There was, it was like below 135 knots in airborne, above 10 knots in grounded, and it, it gets all, it's all sorts of complicated. Installation of Michelin NZG tires and modifications so of when, the anti-skid computer. So when we went to go see the Concorde, I noted that it had Michelin tires. And the ones in this case were had Goodyear tires. Yep. So they had to change the, the actual tires. tires. Mod- Sorry, go ahead. So what's so different about the Michelin tires versus the Goodyear tires? I'm sure that they're like the the way that they're filled and with what they're filled with and it's, what they're made with is all all of that. It usually has to do with the structure of the tire. So a tire is made in layers. If you've ever seen a As tire, as you might have seen in the picture where it was sliced. Yeah. Right, okay. If you've seen yeah, if you've seen how a tire is made, they make it in layers. They make different layers. Some of them include metal. Some of them include wire. Some of them include. There's so many different layers to a tire. And it's really dependent on the functions of the tire. You know, what does it need to withstand in order to to do its normal operations and some abnormal? So basically, they wanted to change the tire, change the the structures of the tire to be reinforced in the event of this. And I'll get into how that's so much of a problem with the Concorde once we're done with the recommendations. 
modification of the shape of the water deflector and removal of the retaining cable, and a ban on the use of volatile fuels and an increase to the minimum quality of fuel required for a go-around. Those were what had to be done before they could be put back into service. And they did those things. Yes, they did. So, recommendations specific to the Concorde. For uh, the airworthiness authorities, the manufacturers, and the operators of the Concorde reinforced the means available for the analysis of the functioning of aircraft systems and in-service events, and for the rapid definition of corrective actions. That's a really confusing one. Yeah, it is. I don't... Yeah. That had to do with transport aircraft, feedback, all that kind of stuff, in-service stuff. Air France... They recommended that Air France ensure that the emergency procedures in the section on the Concorde utilization in this operations manual be coherent with the flight manual. So... Have checklists and stuff match the flight manual for the plane. Yes. This was minor in reality. This didn't really have much to do with the crash. They just... They found that some of the procedures were different than the actual flight manual for the airplane. And Heck of a time to audit your checklist is investigating a crash. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> to have to do with the engine parameters, they recommended Air France equip its Concorde aircraft with recorders capable of sampling at least once a second the parameters that allow the engine speed to be determined on all of the engines. So this was a problem when they found, they did find the FDR and the CVR pretty quick in the investigation, but... And they weren't completely melted to hell. <laughs> they weren't. They they were worried that they would be. They were worried that actually the, the recorders would be melted because of the really high heats, but actually they managed to pull data from both of them. However, engine data was only tracked every so often. Not often enough, they determined, because they wanted to know what the engines were really doing every second of that crash, and they couldn't tell. Is it still just a one-second sampling rate, do we know? To be honest, I don't know, but on most airplanes, I think it's a con- it's a continuous sampling rate anymore. So it's a lot more live okay. than it would be because of the technology, honestly. That, you have to remember, the Concorde is an old airplane. It was built in the 1960s. Yeah, it was built in the 1960s. It was an old, old airplane at this point already. It had been in service for already 30 years, basically. And so it was already 30 years of technology, a little bit outdated. It was modern, but a little bit outdated compared to the stuff that was coming out then and these days especially. It's a lot more modern. So they found in the investigation that there were malfunctions relating to the operation of the aircraft. So they recommended that the DGAC undertake an audit of the Concorde operational and maintenance conditions within Air France. The DGAC is the governing body for airlines and airline operations in France. So here it's the FAA. There it's the DGAC. Did you just know that off the top of your head? I read it earlier. Okay. <laughs> Okay, tests and re- this is the general recommendations now. Those were the ones for the Concorde. These are the general recommendations. Tests and research undertaken in the context of the investigation confirmed the fragility of types against impacts with tires. foreign bodies. Tires. <sighs> they spelled <laughs> tires with a Y. Sorry. Tires against impacts against foreign bodies. So they recommended the DGAC in liaison with the appropriate regulatory bodies study the reinforcement of the regulatory requirements and demonstrations of conformity with regard to aviation tires. Holy cow, that's a lot of words to say they want more regulation on tires. Pretty much. <laughs> um, so this had to do with shock 
or a puncture that could cause damage to a tank. They recommended the DGAC in liaison with the appropriate regulatory bodies. There's that thing. Mod- <laughs> Modify the regulatory certification requirements so as to take into account the risk of tank damage and the risk of ignition of fuel leaks. So they wanted that across. To be clear, both of these say the same thing. They want more regulations on tires. They want more regulations on fuel tanks. But they want that to be aviation-wide. They don't just want that to be on the Concorde. Yeah, that that was all planes. They want that to be common on all airplanes. Airline airplanes, because this is the DGAC, it's airline operations. The next one has to do with finding, having stuff be on the runway, Mm -hmm. right? That caused the crash. So, they recommended the DGAC ensure the rapid implementation of programs for the prevention of debris in aero aerodromes airports yeah airports that's a really formal and old term for airports airports then i don't why okay these programs should involve all organizations and personnel operating on the movement area so it should be inspected more and we do that here we do what's called fod walks fod is foreign object damage and we look for foreign objects and we literally do walks it's completed in a lot of different parts of aviation. General aviation, not as much, but in, in airline operations and such, they do VOD patrol. It's a constant thing at most most major airports. There's almost always an airport operations person driving the whole airport looking for VOD. That pieces of airplanes, pieces of other airport equipment, pieces of trees that may have been blown in the wind. You never know. Sorry, you can may hear a cat in the background. She's being really whiny. Jay, can you love her, please? Just pick her up, put her on your lap, give her some love. <laughs> All right, the next recommendation I read and went, ooh. <laughs> pew, 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 pew. Okay. They, <laughs> you'll see why in a second. Oh my gosh. They recommended the FAA car- carry out an audit of Continental Airlines maintenance, both in the United States and its foreign subcontractors. And that's, pew, while that pew, is pew. definitely fair, it is definitely pointed. And it's funny because there is a, uh, a little disclaimer in here. Let me see if I can find it because it's kind of hilarious. It comes along with this. Okay. Yeah, here we go. It's right here. It says, uh... The conclusions and safety recommendations contained in this report are intended neither to apportion blame nor to assess individual or collective responsibility. The sole objective is to draw lessons from the occurrence, which may help to prevent future accidents or incidents. That's at the beginning of the report. Yeah, so pew, 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 pew. Just saying. They were very pointed. Even though they say they wouldn't be. (laughs) They were. Wow. Okay, the next one has to do with the fact that they couldn't really figure anything out except for having the videos that people took and whatnot. So they recommended the ICAO fix a precise timetable for the FLIREC group. Which is a flight recorder expert group. Right. To establish propositions on the conditions for the installation of video recorders on board aircraft undertaking public transport flights. So basically having a dash cam. But in an airplane. That's what they say, and that has never been implemented. No. Nor will it. Um, There is, it's not to say there aren't cameras on some airplanes, because there are actually. On a lot of modern ones, they have a tail uh, camera, as well as some side-mounted cameras, so they can see the landing gear underneath. However, those actually serve a purpose related to uh, taxiing. 
it's so that when they're taxiing, they can see because on heavy, heavy airplanes, big airplanes, their landing gear is really big, wide. They got to make sure that they're they're going to stay on the taxiway basically, and they can't see those landing gear when they're sitting in the cockpit. So the only purpose they really serve is to help them make sure they don't leave the taxiway, <laughs> basically when they make turns and such. The next one I think is really pointless. They recommended the ICAO study the procedures for the recording. For, for recording specific exchanges between cabin crew members and exchanges between the cockpit and the cabin, which the cockpit voice recorder is there to do with the cabin members. Yep, but essentially. why, first of all, you're supposed to have a sterile cockpit anyway, so you shouldn't right. be talking to people in the cabin on takeoff till you're at your cruising, your cruising altitude. Yeah. That didn't, that didn't really have anything to do with the crash either, did it? Mm-hmm. Not really. Not really. No. That would be more of an another like audit thing. Okay. Uh, the they recommended the DGAC in liaison with appropriate regulatory bodies. There's that phrase again. Study the possibility of installing devices to visualize parts of the structure hidden from the crew's view, or devices to detect damage on those parts of the aircraft. That's a very difficult thing to do. It's basically saying we want sensors all over the airplane to make sure that they know about every inch of the airplane what it's doing, and that's impossible. I mean, there are already a lot of them, and there's already a lot of parameters tracked. You can't get everything you want, though. Yeah, like that, that, and that hasn't happened, so. They recommended the DGAC in liaison with appropriate regulatory bodies study the possibility of modifying the regulatory requirements relating to new flight simulators so they accurately reproduce the accelerations really experienced in the cockpit. This is a recommendation that's come up several times in several of the recent ones we've done, actually, um, because they they found that they weren't they weren't properly simulating speeds and conditions of aircraft in real flight uh, during training operations. Just like in five eighty seven American Airlines five eighty seven, which Kara hasn't heard yet. Sorry. I still need to catch up. It hasn't come out yet. It hasn't even yeah. come out oh, yet. Oh, good. So. Comes so out on you, Tuesday. Even if you were caught up, you wouldn't hear it yet. Okay, yeah. thanks for making me feel better. You're welcome. We also just gave it away to Jay, who's been begging to know what it was. <laughs> it's okay. You get to hear it and on Tuesday. And finally, the last recommendation. the They recommended the ICAO put recommendation 8-1 of the AIG-99 meeting into practice in the shortest possible time and while waiting for the results of this work that the primary certification authorities ask manufacturers to immediately identify all potentially dangerous substances in case of an accident which are used in the manufacture of aircraft under responsibility and to mention them in the explicit manner in documentation. I believe this has to do with the adhesive used on the DC-10. You mean because it didn't freaking work? Yeah, and it wasn't supposed to be there anyways. Nope. Give me a sec. Oh, no. That's no. not what this is. What this is the thing I forgot to mention. Oh, okay. I'm going to read the little disclaimer above what Miranda just read. Investigators and their advisors worked on the wreckage for several days, not knowing that it was polluted with asbestos. Ooh. Oh, yeah. By That's the way. <laughs> so was the asbestos from the plane then? Um, yes. Yeah. Well, that's a problem. It was built in the 60s. In their defense. However. <laughs> this is in 2000, 
though. Yeah. Yes, yeah. but the plane okay. itself well, and was built in right. the 1960s. Asbestos still serves purposes. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's dangerous to humans, but it serves purposes in, you know, uncontaminated areas, basically, where, where humans can't get to it on a normal basis. Right, okay. but if, like, they should have been informed, the point of that recommendation is to inform people who potentially will be doing accident investigation that there may be asbestos and that they need to make sure that they're wearing masks and stuff so they don't inhale the vapors yeah, and all that stuff. Really Personal bad. protective equipment, or PPE. PPE, yeah. I know about that. Uh, I do, too. Yeah. So... Some interesting things came after all of this. So some interesting things came after this. In 2005, which is long after the report was published, the governing body for airline operations, or the DGAC, was, had charges pressed against them, as well as Continental Airlines had charges pressed against them for this accident, specifically targeting the head of the DGAC, the head of the British Aerospatial Corporation, whatever it's called, that created the Concorde, and the two maintenance personnel that did the fix on the DC-10. Why? <laughs> well, the French were convinced that there must have been somebody at fault criminally for this. And there's two different things they pressed charges on. The first one was poor maintenance procedures on the DC-10, obviously. And yes, it was poorly maintained. They were drilling holes when they didn't need to be drilling holes. They were using adhesives they weren't supposed to be using on parts and it didn't work, so that the part fell off. Port maintenance procedure. So they pressed charges against the uh, mechanic that did the work and his manager. Both of them pled guilty in 2010. Which was way more recent. Way more recent. That was only 10 years ago. They, they pled guilty in 2010. They ended up dropping the charges against the DGAC and the head of the Concord program. However, the charges that were pressed against them were relating to knowledge of the fact that tanks may burst. Fantastic. Now, why did, why might they know about that? Because this was not the first time this even happened. No, that's right. I forgot about that. I know. So here's the thing. It was actually a known thing that the Concorde had a tire burst problem. It was also a known thing that that tire burst could cause damage to the airplane, severe damage to the airplane. So they just let that keep happening then well or like so new that there wasn't happen? much they could do about that specifically that's the claim here's the thing is that nobody nobody really knew what the consequence of that could be nobody knew that this was gonna it never happen. had been catastrophic before right the closest thing to this was an incident that happened at washington dulles years before and what had happened in that case the tire again hit debris and it burst the airplane took off into the air and it had a small fuel leak, but it did not have a catastrophic fire. And they managed to bring the airplane all the way back around, but it had damaged hydraulic systems. In that case, the airplane had a hydraulic problem. They had a difficulty uh, landing the airplane, controlling the airplane, landing it, and bringing it to a stop. It nearly ran off the runway. Uh, they said they were basically moments from ca from catastrophe, but they ended up not being. And they that incident was enough already to scare <laughs> scare people, and basically that meant they knew that the tire could damage the airplane. So that's where they pressed charges. However, they didn't know that that meant that it would go through a fuel tank, basically, or cause a fuel tank to burst. Also, it had burst, like, 20-some times in the last 40 years prior to this incident. Yeah, the, they actually had 47 recorded incidents of tires bursting from debris on the Concorde. Wow. And, and none of history. those ended up being catastrophic, except yeah. this one. 
most of the time it was a, a minor incident. And so they were pressing charges against them. They eventually dropped that. Well, again, in 2012, so the me- okay, let me back up. The mechanic in 2010 that pled guilty uh, was sentenced to 15 years, basically, in detention. Is For what negligence. Said. For negligence. And then in 2012, after his sentence was over, they overruled it. Well, it wasn't over. He was still serving it. But they overruled it. It was in November of 2012. He was sentenced in December of 2010, and it was overruled in November of 2012. Yeah, but it wasn't over. His sentence wasn't over, but it was overruled in 2012. It was only 15 months. Oh, I thought you said 15 years. No, 15 months. Oh. His sentence was over, and they overruled it. I think you said years. Okay. Yeah, you said years by mistake. That was my mistake. 15 months. He was sentenced to 15 months in detention for the incident. That sucks. They overruled it. He's already out of jail. (laughs) Yeah, they overruled it after he was out of his sentence. And uh, they determined that he was not at fault and that that could not be a criminal charge because, okay, he made the repair and maybe it wasn't correct, but he couldn't have known the consequences of that. He wasn't criminally doing this wrong on purpose. He was trying his best to repair the part, with what he had. As a matter of fact, by putting the adhesive on there, the whole point was that those plates had problems staying on, and he drilled these holes to match up, and he just wanted to make sure that it would stay there, so he thought adding the extra adhesive would hold it in place, and it didn't. That was the unfortunate consequence of what happened. And it's so strange to me that they they wanted to press all these charges. Eventually everything was dropped, and that's good, but it just seems like a waste of time. I can understand why, if you were mad enough about it happening at the time, why you'd want to do that. But eventually, it's like, there's really... How would he have known yeah, but if you blamed- that that would happen? How would they know that bursting a tire like that would cause this amount of catastrophic failure? Like, right. if that none happened, of that... If that happened every time something like this happened in aviation... Everybody There'd would be stop. lawsuits all over the place. <laughs> Everybody would stop flying. They would stop building airplanes because nobody would want to be liable for anything. And the reality is, is this is purely accidental. They have no, nobody ever intended for any of this to happen. Yeah. And it, the airplane, in reality, was extremely reliable. It was extremely reliable. This was the only actual deadly crash in its entire history. And it was 40 years after it was built, essentially. Yeah. After it was initially built. And that's unbelievable. That's a really good service record for an airplane. And that was the only one in its entire history. And it had nothing to do with the plane itself. It had to do with something yep. being on the runway. So eventually they redid, uh, they managed to fix all of the Concords um, and get them back flying again in 2001 after a long period of being down, uh, grounded. But once they got them flying again, it was only two years later they decided to retire the airplanes. And it had to do partially with the accident. Partially with inefficiency, the airplane was extremely inefficient, and partially with noise and age. The airplane was old. Nobody had built anything to compete. To this point, we haven't talked about it, but flying on a Concorde was extremely expensive. Like $3,000 per ticket expensive. More than that. It was like $30,000 at times. The one in, I think this flight was $9,000 a ticket. Yep, it was $9,000 a ticket. But the, the crazy thing about that is they still wouldn't break even. On those flights. They were losing money every time a Concorde would fly. Is that because of all of the fuel that it took? Yep. It was because of the fuel that it took. The parts were so unbelievably difficult to get that, as a matter of fact, the airplane that we went and saw yesterday in Seattle was used as a parts airplane... For a little bit. For years. 
before it was then put back into service, by the way. So they, they took the airplane out of service when parts became really difficult to get. There was no provider. They stopped producing the Concorde. So, you know, they basically they weren't making new parts anymore anyways. And so eventually they, they ran out of ways to get parts. So they grounded a handful of airplanes for a while. And then eventually they picked one and they said, all right, this one's going to produce parts for the rest of these. <laughs> for British Airways anyways. And they grounded that one. Well, then, eventually, they finally managed to, to hire a subcontractor to start producing new parts for the Concorde to replace it. And eventually, they got the whole thing fixed back up, and it flew again for another 20-something years before it, it finally retired. And In 2003. In 2003. There's a lot more to talk about, but okay. We can do that in the post-episode. I, I need to go soon, so we need to wrap it up. Uh, so that was Air France 4590. The Concorde crash. The Big Concord. The Big Concord. Have a good week. Thanks to Kara for, for guesting. Thanks yep. for having me. That was really fun. We'll probably have her on more. Yep. We like people. <laughs> <laughs> that is not 100% true. <laughs> Let me revise. We like Kara. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Talk to you next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Also, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen. If you want to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi, and our social media is coordinated by Sonora. Catch you next time.